The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I am the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also find us on YouTube and subscribe there as well. Some of our guests like to video their interviews, and we are very happy to post those videos on YouTube. This week is episode number 154. We are just two episodes away from completing three years worth of weekly podcasting, and we sincerely hope that our podcast has helped you in some way if you yourself are dealing with addiction or if you have a friend or family member who is dealing with addiction. So thank you so much for listening. We have an interview this week. This week we are interviewing a gentleman named Sharif Moore. Sharif Moore is an epidemiologist with Drug Free America Foundation. Now, I didn't know exactly what an epidemiologist was, so I looked it up. And the term epidemiology is the branch of medicine which deals with the incidence, distribution, and possible control of diseases and other factors relating to health. If you knew what it meant, sorry, but I didn't. And I figured somebody might not. So that's what he does. He is, he interprets epidemiological data on substance abuse trends in order to inform program planning and policy at the local, state, and federal levels. Prior to joining Drug Free America Foundation, he worked on a variety of public health problems, both domestically and abroad. Previous projects include HIV prevention among people who inject drugs in Southeast Asia, serum vitamin D status, and cancer risk in the U.S., and risk factors for urban leptospirosis, and that is a relatively rare bacterial infection that affects people and animals in Northeast Brazil. Sharif is very passionate about substance abuse research and preventing drug use through science and policy-based solutions. He received his Bachelor of Arts in International Studies from the University of South Florida in 2000, his Master of Public Health in International Health from the University of Alabama, Birmingham in 2003, and his PhD in Public Health Epidemiology from the University of California, San Diego in 2012. Let's talk to Dr. Sharif Moore. Dr. Moore, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I want to mainly talk about, um, obviously, what you have been finding in terms of the whole addiction epidemic and how it relates to marijuana. But I was hoping that you would share your personal story as to kind of what your background is and your own personal story with addiction. Sure. So... um, I was, in 2007, um, I was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, and um, it required surgery and chemotherapy and radiation. I was 32 years old, so I was, you know, like having an atomic bomb dropped on me, and the prognosis wasn't good. Um, So as a result of that, I I was prescribed, you know, very powerful painkillers, and legitimately, because I was in a lot of pain, I I had uh, major surgery. Um, But, you know, as 
it just seemed that um, my life started to unravel. Uh, it felt like everything by some, you know, quirk of fate, all of a sudden, everything uh, was being stripped away from me. Uh, my marriage unraveled. Um, my mental health suffered because I, you know, since I had a very poor prognosis, um, you know, and they, I had to undergo surveillance for five years. I had to live under the threat of most likely um, not surviving for every day, uh, you know, five years. My prognosis was um, about a 24, 25% chance of surviving five years. So I had to live with that. Oh my goodness. Um, I was I in the middle I'm sorry to hear that. I'm 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 just flabbergasted. What um, what a horrible way to live. What a horrible thing to have to live with. Well, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, human beings, uh, we are just we're amazing creatures. We're very resilient, and we can adapt to anything. Um, unfortunately, we adopt some unhealthy coping mechanisms. And um, for me, during that time, my crutch became uh, the pain medication, which, you know, I think to a degree is understandable because, um, you know, I was basically suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and then the loss of my, my marriage. So um, the opioids, um, it felt like you know, I, I remember when the, the very first dose I was given, it felt like a warm, soothing embrace, like a mother's hug, and everything was okay. And from that moment, I think I was hooked from the very first pill. Wow. I just fell in love with that feeling. I can imagine, and I've heard it described that way before. I've heard painkillers described that way. So you, this is so, how many years later now, and you're in remission, right? Yes, this is 12 years later now. I've completely beat the odds. Um, the 10-year the, the outlook was 15%. So wow. I'm um, totally clear of the danger zone. And, um, you know, looking back in retrospect, that whole experience was a blessing in disguise because it really, really you know, puts things into perspective. Um, so, and, and then, you know, I, I believe part of the reason that I, that I underwent this experience and, and I struggled uh, with addiction, you know, to be able to be of service to others and, and help others. Um, I had to go to treatment several times um, before I, I finally, you know, hit my bottom and um, I was ready to just surrender, and try a new way of life. Wow. How long would you say you were addicted? Um, I was addicted for eight years. And, um, well, let me, let, let me, let me backpedal, because um, this started in 2007. And the first time I went to treatment and um, tried to get off of the opioids, I sought out um buprenorphine suboxone treatment, you know, MAT. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was only taking um, 10, 10 to 15 Percocet a day, which is, you know, roughly 100 to 150 milligrams of oxycodone, which is not a big habit. That's, you know, that's a habit that's on the smaller, smaller side. 
and I was prescribed 12 milligrams of, um, of Suboxone. Um, and basically what happened was I traded one addiction for another one that was much, much worse and much harder to shake. Wow. And I had no, you know, at that time, this was a, a, about 2011, um, there wasn't a lot of information um, on MAT and Suboxone. So I had no reason to question my doctor and question the dose. Right. And we know, because we've said it many times on the podcast, that the solution to drug addiction is not just substituting for another drug. There may be very short-term benefits um, of something like Suboxone. I'm not 100% convinced, but I'm not dissing it wholeheartedly, but it can lead to addiction. Yeah, of course, because it's it's an opioid, and it right. uh, you know it, it stimulates the opioid receptors just like morphine or or heroin or, or oxycodone. And the thing about Suboxone is it is very very powerful. It's it's thirty times more powerful than morphine. So um, it's I think the doses that are being prescribed generally for addiction in the United States are irresponsible. Uh, when you look at countries like um, Malaysia and Singapore, they are a, they induct and maintain hardcore IV heroin users on two to four milligrams a day. And here, it's not uncommon to see people being prescribed 16, you know, 24, 32 milligrams of Suboxone. Wow. And that's, I mean, 32 milligrams, that's, that's almost the equivalent of a gram of morphine. Wow. I mean, I just want to say that again, because, okay, so in Malaysia, they've got hardcore heroin users who are shooting up heroin, and they use maybe two to four milligrams of Suboxone. And here, we had someone such as yourself, who did not have a huge um, opioid habit, but you had somewhat of one, and you were prescribed 12. Milligrams. 12 milligrams, that's right. And other people, it's, it's common, they'll get 16 or 24. Wow. <clears throat> because what happens is um, because suboxone or buprenorphine, it has a very strong affinity for the opioid receptor. So if you take it too soon after the last dose of your opioid, it'll put you into precipitated withdrawal. It'll rip whatever opioid is on your receptor, it'll rip it off and, and put you into withdrawal. So you're supposed to wait 24 to 36 hours since your last dose of opioid. That's how you induct someone properly. Here, um, they don't necessarily do that and they give these massive doses and it covers up the, precip- the precipitated withdrawal. Whereas if you do it properly, um, it takes very, very little Suboxone to uh, maintain someone because it is a very powerful drug. And there's no exit strategy. There's no really information on tapering. And the training that physicians have to take to be able to prescribe it, um, it was designed by the pharmaceutical company. It was designed by the manufacturer. So if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. Sounds like it to me. How did you um, ultimately get off of the Suboxone? I had to do a very long, very slow taper. 
Okay. Um, because yes, it is. Uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to come off of because it has a very long half life. So, right. Suboxone is a partial opioid agonist. Um, so the withdrawals are less severe, but they last a lot longer. And that's what makes it so hard to get off of because, you know, the withdrawal symptoms go on for weeks and they can be debilitating, um, you know, fatigue, depression, and insomnia. And it just, it wears people down, right. you know, after three weeks and they're not feeling better. And then, you know, they get, they go back to the drug because they just can't stand it. Right. So it's very tough to come off of. How long did it take you? It took me close to two years. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I hope our listeners are getting that. Because every, every time we talk about Suboxone and how it's really not a good idea, you know, we get bashed on our Facebook page about how horrible we are and how Suboxone has saved this person or that person. And, you know, maybe in the short term it's helpful, but if you want to do a two-year step-down withdrawal, well, okay, there you go. Just know that going into it that you could be facing that. That's heavy duty. Yes, and, um, you know, that being said, I do think it, it has a place. I think, um, you know, ideally, you know, a short-term suboxone right. detox, you know, is, would be appropriate. Right. And lower dosages based on what you were and saying. Lower, absolutely. Yeah. Much lower dosages. Yeah. Dr. Moore, what is your, I'm going to take it away from you for a second. Thank you for tell, sharing your personal story, but you're a doctor of epidemiology. Did you, and so you got that degree after your own addiction and after your cancer diagnosis. Did, did your experience lead you into wanting to study that area? It did. It did. Yes. And um, so I, when I was ill, I had to take time off um, from my doctorate program. Um, and I resumed my studies a year later. Um, you know, at that point, I would, my, my addiction was still manageable. So <clears throat> I was able to, you know, complete my degree against all odds. Um, and at that time, Ironically, I was, I, I was working in cancer epidemiology, and we call it the epidemiologist curse, that you tend to get the disease you're studying. It's mm. a little bit morbid, but it's, yeah, it, it is a thing. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, my experience um, with, with struggling with opioids and um, being in treatment, I think everybody that, that I've, uh, I went to treatment with, you know, that cohort, they're all back out using it's it's a terrible wow. terrible affliction and and that and it it's also in in my family my brother um suffers from marijuana addiction it's literally ruined his life so that was my motivation um for transitioning into substance abuse epidemiology and when i first started working in this field i thought that opioids would be my main interest since that that's what my background was. But the more I learned about marijuana, the more interested I became in it, and the more I saw how much is at stake for our country. And, and I was ignorant of a lot of the, the science behind it because my idea of marijuana was, you know, the drug that was smoked at Woodstock, you know, in the 60s. So I thought, oh, marijuana, it's not that big of a deal. Exactly. But once I started working at Drug Free America, 
and I learned, you know, all of the, the, the latest research and the fact that today's marijuana is like 10 times more potent. It's a completely different drug. That, that convinced me. Wow. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohi.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N ojai.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And interestingly enough, you said, and it came out of your mouth, unprompted for those of our listeners, that your brother is addicted to marijuana. There is a fallacy out there that people cannot get addicted to marijuana, that it's not dangerous. And it's a fallacy. It is, absolutely. And uh, when he's stopped using in the past, either, excuse me, for work reasons or, you know, he's run out of money. Uh, he goes through withdrawal. Yep. Um, he'll be depressed, anxious. He'll suffer from insomnia for several days. So there's there's even a physical withdrawal syndrome associated with it because you have to remember uh, the marijuana that's commonly encountered today, it's not the same marijuana from Woodstock. This marijuana is ultra potent with highly concentrated levels of THC and it has no CBD in it, which is thought to mitigate some of the harmful effects of marijuana. So this is almost like a Frankenstein version of it that's um, very dangerous. And especially when you, uh, you know, when it's hopefully it will never become legal at the federal level. But when you when you expose the entire population, that's when you're going to see a lot of the adverse health uh, and public health consequences like fatal car crashes, increases in schizophrenia, psychotic break, violent crime. We're already seeing it in Colorado and Washington and Oregon. I was going to say that's already coming up. At least I believe I've heard Amy talk about that before. Yes. I mean, the this experiment has been ongoing for um, the past seven or eight years. And the, the data are starting to paint a really frightening picture. It's not encouraging at all. Yeah, but 
I appreciate you calling it an experiment, but I don't think that anybody is looking to um, make it illegal again, are they? In Colorado? Uh, illegal, you said? I, making it illegal. Like if it's an experiment, you could go, oh, that experiment didn't work. Let's reverse right. it. Right. Or that's right. And, and when, you know, in clinical trials, in the treatment arm, if they see that the, that the treatment is causing harm, then the trial is stopped for ethical reasons. But obviously this wouldn't, this wouldn't happen right. uh, with marijuana. The genie is already out of the bottle. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what, are, what are some of the other things that, are, that you're seeing from marijuana, the, the legalization of marijuana in these states? Well, I think the, the most disturbing and um, horrifying thing, I think, is the increase in use among pregnant women. Um, nationally, um, the use of marijuana uh, among pregnant women has increased uh, over the past several years by 30%. And in Florida, over the past two years, <coughs> excuse me, the prevalence of marijuana use among me uh, pregnant women has doubled. So 11% of pregnant women that were surveyed by the National Survey on Drug Use and, and Health uh, in Florida reported using marijuana within the, the last 30 days. And that's I'm, very... I'm dumbfounded and I'm horrified. Do they typically smoke it? Are they um, using uh, or, you know, like an e-cig? Do we, do we know that information? No, um, the survey doesn't capture that information, but I would assume that they're smoking it and vaping it because um, it's being touted as a cure or as a treatment for morning sickness. Um, so I don't think that they would be ingesting, like eating the edibles. Okay, shades of thalidomide, people. I mean, hello, thalidomide was marketed for morning sickness and look what it did to the unborn children. Do we know, is the marijuana affecting the babies yet, or is it too soon to tell? Oh, no, there have been several studies done, not only here, but in Europe. Um, marijuana use during pregnancy, prenatal THC exposure, leads to a wide a, a, a array of neurocognitive and neurobehavioral deficits in childhood and adolescence. Um, increased risk for depression, anxiety, um, attention problems, cognition problems. And then, so what's gonna happen? We're having a, an entire generation um, that's being exposed in utero. And then with the liberalization of marijuana, once they hit medical uh, middle school, they're gonna be exposed again. Right. And we know how detrimental it is um, you know, in adolescence. A motivation, lack of um, educational attainment. So, I, I just it just blows my mind that they would even consider it, legalizing. It drugs. blows my mind. Or is it being marketed to them like it's better than drinking alcohol? I mean, is there a woman out there that doesn't know that drinking alcohol when you're pregnant is not a good idea? <clears throat> I'm really glad you asked that question because. Um, the Department of Health, Colorado Department of Health, they, they, they did a study where they randomly called dispensaries and they, um, the caller pretended that they were a pregnant woman with um, 
morning sickness and they wanted to find out if the dispensary would recommend marijuana instead of you know, telling them, hey, we're not medical professionals, you need to see a doctor. And in 70% of the calls, the bud tenders, uh, you know, the dispensary employees recommended marijuana to these pregnant women as a treatment for their morning sickness. Oh my goodness. Wow. I had no idea it was that scary. Yeah. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. People listening, do you not know that you're not supposed to do things like that when you're pregnant? You're not supposed to ingest certain drugs, marijuana, alcohol? I mean, uh, sorry, I didn't know that. Yeah, it is truly disturbing. Right. Now, what, what, is, your, what is your function with Drug Free America? What is it that you do with them? So I'm an epidemiologist, and I basically track, you know, and analyze the latest trends in the substance abuse epidemic, Um, but really what I've been focusing on is marijuana and marshalling a lot of the evidence on the adverse effects um, so that we can write one-pagers and that we can also inform lawmakers and try to stop marijuana being becoming legal in the state of Florida. Right. Who is the biggest opposition to what you guys do? John Morgan. I was going to say, besides Morgan and Morgan in Tampa. Wow. Okay. So John Morgan of Morgan and Morgan. Yes. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't understand what his motivation is, like what he has to gain because the man already has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, what more could you, could you want? Uh, him and, and George Soros, I think they're just, they're, they, well, they have different motivations, but they're very dark souls. Right. Wow. And they're behind, uh, they're the force, some, a few of the forces that are driving a lot of this. Right. Are you finding uh, in your research, are you um, coming up with the information on vaping and the kids vaping the THC? I haven't looked so much into the vaping. There's not a lot of great data out there yet because it is a relatively newer phenomenon. Okay. Okay. We have a gentleman that comes on the podcast. Um, He's been on several times who speaks out against vaping um, based on a lot of the information that he has, but it will come your way. I'm fairly certain. So, what is next in terms of your agenda? What are you guys on to next? Are you headed to Tallahassee anytime soon? Well, actually, we're headed to Vienna to the Convention on Narcotic Drugs. Ah. Um, the pro, there are pro-marijuana elements that have, and I mean, we think, I, I, I know that George Soros is a convenient boogeyman, But um, he and his Open Society Foundation, they really do fund a lot of these initiatives. But they've they've infiltrated the the WHO. And about a year ago, uh, the World Health Organization, they came um, with these recommendations uh, to reschedule cannabis 
at the international level. And um, there was no transparency and there was no rationale or public health justification for any of their recommendations, which, which basically amount to a loosening um, and a liberalization of, of cannabis laws uh, around the world. So <clears throat> our organization, along with um, many other anti-drug non-governmental organizations, we're gonna be there in Vienna um, to kind of hold the WHO's feet to the fire and, and have them explain themselves and, and, and their rationale for this. And we're hoping that we can convince um, the different member states, the countries that, that vote at the UN, <clears throat> excuse me, okay. to um, either delay this vote or to reject the proposals. Wow. You guys are fighting the good fight. And, and it is a yes, fight. Yes, we are. Somebody, somebody has to do it. So it's, yep. an, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but somebody, win, lose, or draw, somebody has to take a stand against this. Oh, I agree. What do you see happening if uh, recreational marijuana is legalized in our country? Uh, well, I see that, you know, that's, that's a very, very frightening scenario. I know. Because you know, we're in the midst of a triple epidemic, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine stimulants, opioids, and now marijuana. There's something, for some reason, you know, so many people in this country prefer to, um, prefer to, to, to use a substance or an intoxicant rather than, you know, face, face another day of life. Um, so unlike countries, you know, like the Netherlands, where it's been legal for a while and they don't seem to have, you know, um, these severe public health consequences, I think it's going to be disastrous for the United States and especially for our youth. Um, youth use has already skyrocketed and, um, once it becomes, you know, legal once recreational marijuana is legalized, access is going to increase. So you're going to have more and more young people being exposed. And we know from the research that um, starting in adolescence leads to, can lead to permanent loss of IQ, <clears throat> increased risk of suicidal ideation. So I think that has tremendous implications for not only national defense, but for our economy. Yep. Um, yeah. And then not to mention the, the increase in fatal car crashes, um, because we know in, from data from Colorado that most people that smoke marijuana, they also, you know, they like to drink as well. Um, that's, that's fairly common to use the two drugs together. Right. And either substance used alone increases your risk of being involved in a fatal car crash by a factor of five. So in other words, if you smoke marijuana, you're five times more likely to be involved in a, in a fatal car crash. Same for uh, if you drink and you um, drink to the point where you, you would blow up a 0.08 uh, blood alcohol. When you combine the two substances, that increases to a 25-fold risk. So you're wow. 25 times more likely to be involved in a fatal car crash. Wow. And 
I just want to highlight one thing that Dr. Moore said for my listeners that um, prolonged use of marijuana can result in permanent loss of IQ in our young people. I don't know about you, but that's not a risk that I would want my children to take. They're beyond puberty, but I, if I had young children, I would not want to run the risk that they would permanently lower their IQ. I mean, that's just kind of not where we want to go with the kids in this country. And Dr. Moore, this isn't just you saying it. If our listeners wanted to go and read this research for themselves, because I will tell you right now, in the same way that our talk about Suboxone will generate some nasty comments, I can't begin to tell you the feedback we're going to get on our Facebook page from those who want to smoke marijuana. But it's not just your opinion, and it's not just my opinion. Tell them where they can go to get the research. Well, they can go to the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, the Surgeon General. I mean, the science is clear. Uh, Marijuana is a dangerous and addictive drug. There you go. Is there also information on the Drug Free America website? There is. There is. We have um, our our whole Know the Marijuana, Know the Truth campaign. Um, And we also have a research blog in which every week I look at the latest um, research, the newly published research uh, on marijuana, and I just write a blog post kind of translating it into layman's terms. So there's plenty of information on our website as well. That's awesome. Dr. Moore, as kind of as your your parting words, um, I would appreciate it if you would sort of give some marching orders to our listeners in terms of what they need to do if they have now realized that there is a concern here. Oh. <clears throat> well, I would say if it, if at least in Florida, you know, if marijuana is, is the legalization of marijuana gets on the ballot, I get out and vote <clears throat> and, and, you know, and, and write your lawmakers Look at, look at the science and write your lawmakers and tell them that we don't want this for our kids, we don't want it in our state, and we don't want it in our country. And educate, educate your, your friends and family because what we're fighting against, there's this entrenched um, belief that's almost, it's like it's a part of our national psyche that, oh, it's, it's just marijuana, you know, it's no big deal, it's a soft drug. Um, and, and people believe that, the, the, the perceived harms of marijuana are still very, very low. Uh, people just don't think it's a dangerous drug, and that's not all. That's not the case at all. So, right. thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for taking the time to talk to us today. I know it's a hot subject, but it's an important subject, and I'm going to just repeat what you said to the listeners. You need to get educated on the marijuana of today. It is not the marijuana of the '70s. It is perhaps not the marijuana that you smoked when you were in college back in the 70s. You need to get educated and you need to educate your lawmakers so that they don't even consider passing the legalization of marijuana, both here in Florida, wherever you are. And if you are unfortunately in a state that has legalized it, you need to get educated and you need to start lobbying your legislators to repeal it. There you go. You can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because today's marijuana, it's not even the marijuana of the 1990s. Oh, there you go. It's that potent. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank, thank you so much for spending your time with us today, um, Dr. Moore. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening today. I wanted to give you some information that um, Dr. Moore gave um, us after we were done interviewing him. And he said that per a study by SAMHSA, that's uh, S-A-M-H-S-A, per the data from SAMHSA, which is a government agency, that uh, marijuana was the most common cause for seeking treatment among 12 to 17 year olds. And this was in 2017. I'm going to bet that that's way higher in 2000, in 2019, but the most recent data was for 2017. I'm going to say that again. Marijuana was the most common cause for seeking treatment among 12 to 17 year olds. You should check it out. When you listen to the podcast, if you look in the notes, I will put the link so that you can get the information directly from SAMHSA's website. Once again, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are hoping that with the launch of our YouTube channel, we are reaching many more people who like to go through YouTube rather than listen to audio podcasts. So definitely find us on YouTube, go to our Facebook page, shout out to us. You know, if you have a story that you would like to tell, whether it's your own story of addiction or the story of a loved one, you can reach out to us. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. And please feel free to reach out to us. We have a website you can check out, theaddictionpodcast.com, and all of our episodes are there. Thank you so much for listening. We have two more episodes before we end out our third year. And we will be back again next week with another interview. So have a good week. Get help if you need it. Get help for your loved ones if they need it. Don't wait. Do it now. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.